You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I want to read to you first from the text. Usually I say some stuff and then we get in the text. I want to read first from the text today. Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life, listen, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, remember Paul, Paul's in prison, anticipated he was going to get there to see them, But he says, regardless, whether I come and see you or not, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side or together for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. What a strange word. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What a strange word. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. One of my deepest desires for our church at Harvest Niagara is that we would be a launch pad for the gospel. You know what a launch pad is, right? The rocket ship gets fastened down to this thing and they do the countdown, five, four, three, two, one, and Boom! And it goes. And it goes wherever it's going. It goes with power. I want our church to be that, but not launching spaceships, obviously, but the gospel. The gospel, this would be a place where the the gospel is going all the time. And to that end, I want us to be a church that's really serious about training people for mission. And I believe we are serious. There's a great track record of these things here in this church. But that we'd be a church that brings them in, trains them up, and sends them out. That, that we would be a, a church that is active in equipping people to serve Christ, planting churches, strengthening churches. also want us to be a church where week after week, in a very personal sense, we see and experience the power of God at work among us, saving souls, changing lives, strengthening families, in marriages. I want us to be a church that's on the front lines of global mission, that we would have an active role in reaching the unreached peoples of the world and be active in reaching the hard to reach people here in Canada. That's what I want for us. I yearn for this. In fact, I am praying right now. You know what I'm praying for right now in my life? I am praying regularly that God would show us as a church what's next. That he'd refresh our vision so that we would continue to be and really truly be, as long as he gives us life, 
a launch pad for the gospel. In a word, I got dreams for us. I got dreams for me, I got dreams for you, I got dreams for us. But as you, you probably know, having dreams is one thing, seeing them realized is another. You ever had a dream that you just couldn't get off the ground? That happens at churches all the time. Every church has got ambitions. Every, you ask any church, any evangelical church, do you want to be a launch pad for the gospel? Explain what you mean by that. I guarantee you they say yes. That's what we want to be. Every church wants to be something like this, at least the ones who love the Lord. Every church has some kind of ambition, some kind of passion, or at least they did at once. But so often what happens is churches get stuck. There's a countdown and there's a puff of smoke and nothing happens. Mission aborted. They get sidetracked. They get slowed. They become unfruitful, ineffective, and sadly, so often, a shell of their former selves. And it's worth asking, how does that happen? This was Paul's concern for the church at Philippi. This was a church that was about the same age as our church, and just like this church, had seen remarkable things happen. They had a great, just like this church, had a great track record of evangelism and growth and love and being on mission. And Paul loved that about them. We've seen in our teaching series through Philippians so far through the first chapter that Paul is, I mean, he is really, um, really grateful and excited about the good things that God has done in them and through them. This is a church that's been on mission. This is a church, when you read about it, you're like, these folks got ambition. They got dreams. They've got vision. And Paul sees this, and it's encouraging. But when he comes to this part of the letter, at verse 27, you can see there's a, a shift, a shift from a shift from re rejoicing in what God is doing through them and through Paul, rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, to now expressing a measure of concern. Paul's concern for the Philippian church was that they would keep on keeping on, that they would keep on mission. When he looked at them, he saw that there's good things that are happening, but he also saw that there was one thing he knew that they needed to attend to. And if they didn't, they ran the risk of getting stuck in the mud. What was it? Well, it was something that if neglected, if ignored, threatened to derail them. It was a make or break issue. And it's also true of any church. There is something that is essential for our progress. It's key for our flourishing mission, for fruitfulness in our ministry. What is it? It's right there in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's it, right there. The main exhortation of this passage is right there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Loved ones, we must live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, right away, that raises questions. What does that mean? <laughs> Sounds kind of abstract. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, I'm going to explain that in just a moment, what I believe Paul means by that, and it is the make or break issue in this text. 
But I want you to notice four things here about this exhortation. The exhortation is we must live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Notice, firstly, this is crucial. And I say that it's crucial because of the word only. Only. You see that in my Bible, beginning in verse 27, starts with the word only. Or the NIV uses the phrase, whatever happens. Whatever happens. Paul said that he just got done saying he was persuaded that he would that he would somehow, some way, get to return to Philippi and encourage them and build them up. But when he uses this word only here, he's basically saying, listen, but regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what actually unfolds, what really matters is this. Or when I look at you, I've already highlighted so many good things about you, but there's one thing that concerns me that you must attend to. That's why he's got the word only it's, it's crucial. This is a key make or break issue. If you ignore this or neglect this, you will not succeed in mission. It's crucial. Secondly, this is a command. This is command. Let your manner of life. Do you feel the, the strength of exhortation there? It's, it's authoritative, right? It's, it's, it's not a suggestion. It's not something he tosses out for debate. But it's a directive to do. It's a must. It's crucial. It's a command. It's all-encompassing. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life. That, that phrase there, manner of life, other translations tra- render it conduct yourselves. Either is fine. It, it's fair. The word that Paul uses here is a word we'll see in a different form later in Philippians, a noun form later in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, where he talks about being citizens of heaven. He's talking, it's a word that's related to citizenship and how one conducts themselves, how you, you carry out your life's business. So conducting yourself, manner of life, those are, those are our fair statements. But what I want to highlight for you is this, this affects so much of our life. It's all-encompassing. It has to do with how we carry ourselves in everything, and we will see, especially in our togetherness as a church. It's going to involve our attitudes. It's going to involve our outlook. It's going to involve our words, our priorities. It's all-encompassing. It's crucial. It's commanded. It's all-encompassing. Fourth, it's what the gospel calls for. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whatever it means to let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, whatever that means, it's called for by the gospel. The gospel is the standard. It's the measure. It's, it's my conduct is to be fitting, worthy, fitting, suitable. It, it's to go with it. It's appropriate. You can think in some places... In life, there's certain kinds of behavior that are okay that are not okay in other places. It's not, it's not suitable, it's not fitting to behave at a funeral the way you behave at a football game, right? Nor would you say, as a sports fan, I don't think it's suitable to behave at a football game like you behave at a funeral. It's, it it doesn't, doesn't fit, right? You don't drink beer and eat popcorn at the graveyard, you don't. It's not, it's not okay. And we can even debate whether it's okay to drink beer or not. That's a whole other, that'll be for another pastor to take up, not me. <laughs> the conduct that Paul calls for here is to be shaped by the gospel. It's crucial. It's commanded. It's all-encompassing. It's what the gospel 
calls for. The exhortation is we must live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. So now what exactly does that mean, Pastor? What, what, is, what is he saying here? Put it in terms that we can say, ah, now I know what I'm called to do. Okay, since you asked. I think that living worthy of the gospel here in this text means three things. The first one is the main thing, and the other two accompany it. You confused yet? So it means three things. The first thing is the main thing that it means, and the other two accompany it. It's part of it. First, living worthy of the gospel of Christ means being united on mission. Being united on mission. That's the main thing. So if you're asking me, okay, I can see in my Bible, says just like it does in yours, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ or something like that, depending on your translation. You look at me and say, Ross, what does that mean? What I'm telling you it means mainly is this. It means being united together on mission for Jesus. Say, how do you, how do you figure? Well, just get looking at what he says here. After that phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, so regardless of what happens to me, I may hear that you are, noticed standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. That's mission. So there's a oneness here. There's a unity here. On mission, standing firm is a military term. It means steadfast, immovable, feet planted. But notice it's standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, some commentators see the phrase one spirit and take that to refer to the Holy Spirit. Plausible, certainly plausible. I would argue that that pulling this off in our church life will require a mighty work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to stand and argue with anybody who interprets it that way. I don't think, though, that the text requires that. In fact, I think it's parallel to the phrase. I think one spirit and one mind are parallel together. That's why the translators of my Bible just use a small S, not a capital S, for spirit. We're not going to stand here and split hairs all day over about what it means. The emphasis, though, is on the oneness. A oneness in spirit, a oneness in mind. What does that mean? It means it's a oneness in purpose. It's a oneness in heart. It's a oneness in ambition, in goal. If you've got a oneness of spirit and a oneness of mind, it means we're together. But we're not just together in a huddle. We're together going. And, he says, it's for the faith of the gospel. So you see what I mean? It's being united on mission. And this is massively important. Striving side by, striving side, by side together. Here he uses athletic terms. So the standing firm he uses from the military. Then he, then he thinks about the jocks in the church. And he says, he says hey, it's like, you know, it's striving side by side. And they think sports, right? I mentioned football already. Football's a great analogy for this. You've got a, you got a team. You've got uh, people who play different positions with different skill sets, right? Some are refrigerator-shaped gentlemen who are curiously agile, who can, isn't it amazing? You ever seen some of these, these ginormous football players? They can all dance, all of them. Because they're quick on their feet, they can move, and they're huge. 
And then you've got the, you get the running backs, and then you've got the, the receivers, and then you get the quarterbacks. And full confession here, I, I'm not even really a football fan, so I'm just working on, my, my, my son helps me stay in the loop. And, and, but there's some of the kickers, right? The linebacker can't kick. <laughs> and the kicker cannot be a linebacker. They're always like, you know, like 120 pounds. They all get different roles to play. They all get different strengths. They all get different abilities. But they're together on mission. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Being united. United. On mission. Being united on mission was an emphasis for Paul because he saw that it was an issue a boiling issue in the church at Philippi, as healthy as they were, and they were a healthy church. He could see that in their ranks there was internal dissension. We'll have more to say about that later because he will delve right into that, and I'm just going to warn you, Paul gets real deep and real personal. There was internal dissension brewing in the church. Not only that, there was external opposition. It's putting pressure on the believers, and it was vital that they be united together on mission. Loved ones, when we're united together on mission, it means we have one common treasure, Jesus. And we treasure him. We love him together. Being united on mission means we have one common priority, that Christ would be honored and that he'd be known and worshiped and loved. Being united on mission means we have one common objective. It's the advance of the gospel. To see souls saved and lives changed and disciples made and disciples who make disciples and churches planted and churches strengthened. Being united on a mission means we have these objectives. Unity among the saints here in Paul's mind is crucial for this. Being united and not just being united but being united on mission is vital. The church is not united on mission. They're not going to be successful in their mission. You say, well, why is that? Well, we could come up with some pragmatic answers about how people pulling in different directions is counterproductive, and there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. But I think there's a bigger reason. Psalm 133 says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Isn't that true? When there's unity, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You know what the end of the psalm says? Building on this, it says, For... There the Lord bestows his blessing. Let me read that again. How good, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the end of the thought, at the end of the psalm is, for there, in that unity, in that place of harmony, there the Lord bestows his blessing. That's to me why it's so crucial that we be united on mission, because it's where God shows up. It's when his people, in humility, and in tender affection for Christ, for each other, united on mission, God is there. This is where he bestows his blessing. Now we'll see as we work our way through Philippians, Paul is concerned that they indeed be united on mission. Because see, where there is unity in the saints together on mission, that's where God gives his favor, that's where God gives his blessing, that's where God gives his power. But where there's bitterness and fighting and suspicion and critical spirits and unforgiveness and grudges, 
God is not pleased to work in power. So how successful is supernatural ministry going to be without the supernatural one? We can build a crowd. We can build a crowd. Just give me $10,000 to go spend at Best Buy, and I'll build you a crowd. We'll give away whatever. I don't know, whatever. Give away money. Just, just give away the offering next week. We can build a crowd. But that's not what we're about. Loved ones, let me ask you this. This is getting personal, but I'll just ask you this. Are there issues in your own heart and in your own mind right now that stand between you and someone else in this church? Are there issues that stand between you and others that might flummox our unity? Is there something that you are treating, this is getting real personal, but I think the text demands it. Is there something that you are treating as more important than the mission he's given us? And the evidence that you're treating as more important is because you hold it so near and dear. Is there soul searching for you to do? Is there, is there forgiveness for you to work toward? Notice I say work toward because some things take time, take prayer, take a process. But is there forgiveness for you to work towards? Is there mercy for you to seek? I ask these questions because living worthy of the gospel means being united on mission. And if there's unforgiveness or bitterness or things that we treasure too highly in our hearts, we won't be united on mission. And we'll be a big puff of smoke and no liftoff. Living worthy of the gospel means being united on mission. Now, that's the first thing and the main thing. Now, remember I said the other two things go with it. So what are the other two things? Well, they're important too. So these, these aren't just mine. Like, don't put away your notes and get ready for lunch, or I guess it's not lunch, brunch maybe. These are important too. The second thing is this. Living worthy of the gospel means being unafraid of opposition. Being unafraid of opposition. Notice verse 28. I laugh because it's just like, I read that and I think, Paul, it's just so easy for you to say, isn't it? And not frightened in anything. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Of course, as soon as they say it's easy for you to say, Paul, he's like, no, it's not easy to say. I'm in jail, Ross. As I write this, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Gospel ministry can be scary. And you know why it can be scary? Because behind all the flesh and blood opposition is one serious, daunting opponent. Revelation 9 and verse 11, he's described with two names, one in Hebrew one in Greek. The Hebrew name is Abaddon. The Greek name is Apollyon. Both the Hebrew word and the Greek word mean the same thing. You know what it means? Destroyer. Let's talk about the devil. What does the devil do? He destroys. What does he want to do to you and your Christian witness? He wants to destroy it. What does he want to do to your marriage? He wants to destroy it. What does he want to do to your teenagers, young adults? He wants to destroy them. What does he want to do to our church? 
He wants to destroy this church. You know that. Like that's, that's what he wants to do. That's what he does. That's, and I'll tell you something else. It's something he's good at. He's bigger than you and me. He's smarter than you and me. He got a lot more experience than you and me. In fact, if it's just you and me, we don't stand a chance. But it's not just you and me. <laughs> Praise God. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Talk with the devil. So that's why Paul can have the audacity to say, not frightened in anything by your opponents, but it is a bit scary. That's why we got to keep coming back to these texts. Earlier this week, I was out for a run, which I do from time to time, and I was running along the canal, like beside the canal, not along the canal. That would have been something. And as I was running along beside the canal, I kind of get zoned in. It's like, I, I do enjoy running. It's a great place for me to, well, first of all, to try to take care of this body that God's given me, and, and, uh, which is a full-time job, and uh, running along there, and it helps me think and everything like that, but sometimes I kind of get in the zone, and some of you who are runners, you know what I mean? You just kind of get in the zone, and you're just kind of dialed out. You're not really aware of what's going on around you. I'm running along, and I look up, and all of a sudden, I see on the path in front of me about, I don't want to exaggerate, but I'd say about 40 geese. 40 geese. You know what I mean by geese, right? Just uh, uh, gooses, right? These, yeah, right? Now, you know, up in the sky, they just look like a majestic bird. You know, up close and personal, them birds are beefy. They, like, there's, there's some weight to those birds. And I, I come up along. Now, I'm looking at them, and I'm like, they're just geese. But as I get closer to the geese, I start asking myself questions. Are geese friendly with people? Have you ever heard of a goose attacking a person? Could a goose hurt me? And then I realize there's like 40 of them. Now I'm on my run and I've got my manhood to deal with too, right? So I'm not turning back or running away. I'm going to go, I made the decision, I'm going to go through this flock of geese. Okay, <clears throat> I'm not a jet engine, I'm not afraid I'm going to crash or anything like that. I'm going to go through this flock of geese. But as I'm going through these geese, as I get closer, I slow right down. And then it's just like the fear takes over. I start talking to the geese. I start talking like they're a nasty dog, you know, like just fixing to bite me or something like that. Like, okay, it's okay, little buddy, go along like this and talk to them. And now at this point, like manhood's out the window. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. Because like one goose, I like my chances. Forty geese? I, I don't want to try that. So I'm just, I'm going through it. And, and of course, there's stuff I got to tiptoe around all in the path. And guy. So there's a lot going on in this moment, including I'm in my own head about imagining, you know, a headline, local pastor bludgeoned by geese. <laughs> now you say, Ross, it's a little dramatic, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to my wild imagination. The reality is that sometimes our imagination runs away with us when it doesn't necessarily need to. And maybe some of you would tell me, no, no, you should have been afraid. You're lucky you got out of that alive. I honestly don't know. But my tendency is to think that probably I wasn't in that much of danger. Sometimes our imaginations can run away with us. But here's the thing. When it comes to opposition and gospel ministry, it's serious. And there's really no limit to what our imaginations could imagine that could be possible. So it is scary. But living worthy of the gospel means being unafraid of opposition. Being unafraid of opposition. 
say, well, how, on what basis would I not be afraid? Well, notice what he says after this. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, this, I take it to mean your unity in, on mission and your courage, your fearlessness, your pressing on in spite of your fears. This, oh, I lost my spot. Oh, yeah, this, verse 28, is a, notice, a clear sign to them of their destruction. And you could add in the margin whether they see it or not. But it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What in the world does this mean? Well, I think what Paul is giving us here is a reminder of the basis of the courage that we, have, we can have in Christ and the reason we have to not be afraid. Because I'm saved and secure. And whatever opposition I face without repentance will one day meet up with God. It's a sign of their destruction. It's an evidence of, a proof of their, destruct, their destruction. Here's how I think this works. As we are gripped by the gospel, this results in us, as we're gripped by the gospel, this results in us persevering together in unity on mission, which is, whether they see it or not, or realize it or not, is a sign, it's evidence that what we preach about Jesus is true. So for those who reject Jesus, again, whether they see it or not, our treasuring Christ in the face of their strong opposition displays the all-surpassing worth of Jesus as we testify to his worth, that, and our testimony gets louder even as insults and opposition are hurled at us, you see? So the greater the opposition and the continued perseverance, it's a sign, it says something to the world that Christ has risen, the gospel is true. It's a sign of their destruction that in a coming day, they will stand before God. There is, there is Christ who's died for sin, and he is the sole sufficient sacrifice for sin. And if you turn to him and trust in him, your sins will be forgiven, and you need not fear that judgment. But if you reject Christ, then you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. And in rejecting the sole sacrifice that God has given provided for our sins. It is, it is their destruction. It is a foretaste. It's pointing forward to what's coming. Christ perished for the repentant. If you will not repent, you'll perish. It's a sign of their destruction. See, that's a heavy word. I didn't write it. It says it right there. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but notice, of your salvation. Our treasuring Jesus, no matter the cost, is a sign to us that we're really saved. Like when you go through some things with Jesus, trusting in him, still serving him, still on mission, by God's grace, he does something for us. He assures us in our hearts that I'm really his. I'm not fake. It's a sign of your salvation. That's why he says, don't be afraid, be unafraid, be unafraid. Be, being worthy of the gospel, as you face opposition and persevere through it, you're showing you really believe the gospel. And it's worth believing in that Jesus really is trustworthy. And so, that's the basis. It's a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. Living worthy of the gospel means being united on mission, unafraid of opposition, 
Now, thirdly, it means being undergirded by God's twofold provision. They said, that's a mouthful, Pastor. Yeah, just work with me here. Okay. Undergirded, supported, strengthened by God's twofold provision. Notice what that twofold provision is. And it sounds strange, but verse 29. For it has been granted to you, so we just talked about opposition, don't be afraid of opposition, it's a sign of the destruction of those who reject Christ and of your salvation, and that from God, for, and he explains now, he expands on this, for it has been granted to you, granted to you by who? By God, right, the end of verse 28, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict or the same struggle, i.e. gospel ministry, that you saw I had. Remember when Paul planted this church 10 years earlier? Paul's like, you saw it. You saw the struggle. You've, you've witnessed it. And I still have that same struggle. You're in it too. Because gospel ministry is hard. Living worthy of the gospel means being undergirded by God's two-fold provision. The first part of that provision is to believe. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Do you know that your faith is a gift? It's a gift from God. I mean, you must respond to Jesus. You must respond to the gospel. You must. But wonder of wonders, really, that, that ultimately, as we read Scripture, we see that ultimately, ultimately came from God. That he worked in you to grant you repentance, to grant you faith, to believe in him. It's a wonder. That's what Paul says here. It's, it's been given to you to believe. Your standing before him is a gift. It's ultimately owing to his powerful working in your life. Faith is a gift. But here's the weird part. Paul says, so is suffering. Suffering is, is a gift? That, that's what he says. Says this in your Bible. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Jesus, on mission for Jesus... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So under the sovereign control of God, he has ordained that fulfilling this mission together would take place through much hardship. There's a little guy, a friend of our family's little guy, he's six years old, and he's the most amazing church history buff I've ever met. He's six years old. And he could like he put us to shame. I'm serious. And uh, I said to him, he, they were over uh, for dinner a couple nights ago, and, and uh, I said to him, I said, Jed, his name is Jed, Jed, because I knew he would have an answer for me. I said, Jed, tell me something about Charles Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. I read something of Spurgeon almost every day. I said, Jed, tell me something about Charles Spurgeon. He put down his fork, he turned around to me, and he said, I can tell you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I said, okay, let me hear it. Here's what he said. There is hardship in everything except eating pancakes. <laughs> I said, that's great. Can you repeat that for me again? There is hardship in everything except eating pancakes. Loved ones, there's hardship in everything. When you signed up for Jesus, they may not have said this in the tract you were reading. Or in that message that you heard, but when you chose to follow Jesus, you signed up for glory, for hope, for a future that's certain and sure, but you also signed up to walk what Jesus calls the narrow path. 
and it's a hard road. And here's what Paul says that blows my mind. That's given to us. That's a gift from God. Well, I have to acknowledge there's ways in which this is hard for me to comprehend because it raises a sensitive question. Why does God ordain suffering in my life? And I think to answer that question in full, we need to go to other texts. The Bible has more to say about suffering in the Christian life than just this. Lots more. Require longer discussion on the nature of the fall of humanity, but the realities of spiritual warfare that we've touched on and on the providence of God. These are all things. There's much more to say than what Paul says here. But there are three things I want to point out. Take a note of this, loved one, please. First of all, just because you can't think of a good reason why God would allow you to go through what you're going through doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? I can't make sense of it. Where people go is they say, well, because God's let this to happen in my life, then God must not be good. Well, hang on a second, hang on a second. Do you know everything there is to know? Are you all knowing? Do you got a full handle on all the dynamics and realities in all the universe? Do you, you know everything? Well, no. Just because we can't think of a good reason why God would allow something to happen doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. Second thing I'd say about this is we know that Jesus himself suffered injustice, abuse, abandonment. He suffered physically, emotionally, spiritually. So whatever the reason is that God allows, ordains suffering in our life, it's not because he doesn't care. He cares. He knows what it's like firsthand. Third, we know that God is not punishing us. If you are in Christ, the punishment has been taken by Jesus. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means Jesus absorbed all of God's anger, and he was angry at you. But when Jesus died, you put your trust in him. All that anger went from you to Jesus. So whatever happens now in your life, it's not punishment. He disciplines us. He corrects us along the way. But it's for our good. It's for our joy. What Paul shows us here is that whatever God's reasons, he has good in view, particularly the advance of the gospel. God has Christ-exalting, gospel-advancing reasons for allowing the disappointments in your life, even the tragedies, even the tragedies. I know I don't understand it all. But somehow, someway, God is able to take our suffering And as we keep trusting in Jesus by the strength that he provides us, it puts a spotlight not on ourselves and on our own resolve, but on him because he gives us our resolve. And when you go through hell on earth and are still clinging to Jesus, and in fact are somehow, someway joyful in Jesus, it says something to the world that this is real. Jesus really arose from the dead. This person believes this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he's put this gospel ministry in jars of clay. You know what the biggest problem is with the clay jars are? Is that they're fragile. I dropped a plate out of my cupboard one day in our old house. It dropped, it hit the floor in the kitchen, narrowly missing my foot, thank you, Lord. And it rolled across the kitchen, 
all across the kitchen, and before I could catch up to it, it turned the corner, went straight down the stairs, went bounce, 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 down the stairs, didn't break until it hit the bottom. It hit the bottom, it did a little swirly thing, like, you know, like Kawhi Leonard, Leonard sort of thing, you know, on the hoop, the little swirly thing, and then it laid flat and shattered at about nine pieces. Amazing. If I had it on video, we'd make money on America's Funniest Videos, but I didn't. It happened too fast. We're like that plate. We take some bumps and bruises, but we break. Why are we in jars of clay? Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, for a purpose, to show that the true source of our power is not us, but God. And the result, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, is so that we will not only carry the message of Jesus, but display the cross of Jesus in our very lives. And that's how God works. Let me leave you with this story that I read just last week. Reading this book by J.D. Greer, and he relayed this story about a woman named Clara. I don't believe that Clara is her real name. But he says, a few years ago, our church received news that Clara, a single girl in her 20s who had joined up with one of our church planting teams in Asia, had been kidnapped by Islamic fundamentalists. No trail, no ransom notes. She just disappeared. To this day, she has never been found. Every indication is that she was executed. Our team leader on location in the country tells the story. This is what the team leader said. Clara was taken early one morning on her way to work. For several days, we heard nothing. And then we got word through a local source that she was being held captive in the mountains. I and a few others of the team ended up negotiating with the hostage takers for five months. During that time, we received news that she was being moved around to keep her hidden. The U.S. military tried several rescue attempts. Twice they got very close. One of those times, we found out later she had been moved to a neighboring house as the troops arrived. Another time, she was hidden in the basement of the house, and the rescue team just missed her. You can only imagine the frustration Clara must have felt to hear her rescuers just feed away and then realize that the attempt had failed. I wish I could share with you that this story ends happily, but this story has no real ending. We do not know exactly what happened to Clara. She kept being moved from village to village, handed off from one group of rogue men to another. The last we heard was she was handed over to a nomadic group of armed smugglers and wandered through the desert of death in southeastern Afghanistan. And then she disappeared. They had threatened to kill her because they had found Christian literature on her computer but we had no proof, no body. She was not heard from. She has not been heard from in over seven years. She simply disappeared. Is she, her team leader asks, is she an extraordinary hero of faith? Well, in a sense, she was. When news of Clara's kidnapping got out, local women from this fundamentalist Islamic community were outraged. For the first and only time in the history of that oppressed place, 300 women marched to the governor's mansion to demand that he do something to free her. These women had benefited from her kindness. They had seen Christ in her. But honestly, it's hard for me to think of her as the hero, in the hero category. If I sit and remember her, she was... She was a regular young woman from the United States, a smiling friend, a person who struggled along with the rest of us when the weather was hot, and who loved to go on vacation, 
A regular American girl who decided to step out in faith and obey a calling from the Lord to go. The only reason she was here in Central Asia is because of the gospel. It was her understanding of what Christ had done for her on the cross and how he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant that led her to leave her life in, suburban American, in the suburban American Southeast to move to one of the most forsaken places on earth, a place where dust storms were a daily occurrence, where windows have had, have had blast film because of the risk of explosions at any time, a place where there's no electricity to, to run a fan in the 100-degree heat in summer where she would have only sporadic internet access to write emails or to get news from home, a place where an armed Islamic group that is hostile to the gospel operates with impunity. She did this because she understood that Christ had come to earth to face even greater dangers, even more separation from his Father, even more discomfort for our sake. And here, finally, listen. Just one week before she was kidnapped, she had shared with a group of women on our team a verse that the Lord had impressed on her. What do you think the verse was? Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe on him, but also suffer for his sake. When you are undergirded by God's twofold provision, the provision of faith and the provision of suffering to make much of Jesus. When that undergirds you and supports you, and not only you, but our church, we will be a church that's on mission for the Lord. Loved ones, this is what it is to live worthy of the gospel. United on mission. It's a make or break issue. Will it break us? Or will it make us harvest Niagara? United on mission. Unafraid of opponents. Not because we're macho. Because we got God. Undergirded by his twofold provision of faith. And of knowing that even my hardships are ordained by him for good. And for glory. Will you join me as we close in prayer? All I want to do in closing in prayer is I just want to pray through these three things. Father in heaven, it matters to us that we be united on mission. I pray, Lord God, that you would search us and show us anything in our hearts, any kind of conduct that would stand in the way of us being united on mission. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us courage and confidence in the knowledge that we are secure and we have a sure salvation in you. Give us strength to stand, not afraid, but going forward with boldness for Christ, with good news for the nations. Lord, uphold us and strengthen us in the knowledge that you are God and there is nothing comes our way apart from your from your permission, give us faith to believe that not only are you at work encouraging us in faith, but even the hard things, Lord, you are sovereign over them and you have good purposes for them. Lord, help us to be prayerful about these things.
that we would be a church that's not a puff of smoke, but we really would be a launch pad for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.